They have never been converted to Christ, but they act as though they have. And really, the bottom line is they want the benefits of Christianity without really submitting their lives to God. They've altered some outward aspects of their life. They go to church, they don't cuss anymore, etc. You know, they kind of fit their life in the outward form of evangelical Christianity, but their inward parts have not been changed. The latest statistics concerning men and women addicted to pornography and other illicit sexual sins are staggering. 64% of men report that they are viewing porn at least monthly. 36% of young men say that they are watching it at least daily. And 25% of men admit that they are having an affair. The worst part? These statistics are not from people outside the church but from people professing to be followers of Jesus. Welcome to The Church Addicted. I'm your host, Nate Dancer, and this is Purity for Life. Here at Pure Life, because we deal with men seeking help with habitual sexual sins, we're aware that statistics show that over half of the men in every evangelical congregation in this country are viewing pornography on a regular basis. Now, as sad as those numbers are, the truly telling part is that those numbers are identical for men who claim to have no faith in God at all. In other words, when it comes to sexual sin, the church is no different from the world. In this episode, and for several more to come, we're going to ask the question, why? Why is the church addicted? What's wrong with our faith, or the practice of our faith, that leaves many a professing saint with no real victory over their sins? Today, we're going to look at the real problem with incomplete conversions. In episodes to follow, we'll look at important subjects like the lack of godly disciplines in a believer's life, the issue of worldliness in the church, the shift away from teaching Christian obedience, and the lack of the fear of the Lord. We believe that these are vital issues and explain why there are millions of men and women in our churches who are hopelessly addicted to sin and desperate to get free. The truth is, the church is addicted, and we are offering hope for the way out in Christ. Today, we talk about incomplete conversions. Our founder, Steve Gallagher, has studied and written extensively on the subject in his book, Standing Firm Through the Great Apostasy. In this segment from our archives, he has a conversation with Mike Johnston about what true biblical conversion to Christ looks like. Steve, as we continue our discussions in your book, Standing Firm Through the Great Apostasy, we want to talk about a subject today that from a spiritual perspective, is the critical issue of Christianity, and that is the issue of conversion. And as you open this chapter, you talked a little bit about why you wrote this book as it relates to conversion. Talk a little bit about that. 
Well, what I was saying in the opening of this chapter, Mike, was that you can classify humanity in a lot of different ways, different kinds of people groups and so on. But when it comes to spiritual matters, there's really only two groups, those who have been converted and those who are unconverted. But in Christendom, we find a third group, a group of people who insist on there being this kind of gray area between. In other words, they have never been converted to Christ, but they act as though they have. And really, the bottom line is they want the benefits of Christianity without really submitting their lives to God. Steve, what is it about this particular group that takes them outside of what you would call a a true conversion? What is it that they're looking for, trying to hold on to, that sets them apart from a true convert? Well, a convert is someone who has basically thrown up the white flag and surrendered their heart and life to God. You know, that's a convert. But what we see in the lives of many people in the church are those who have been altered into Christianity rather than being converted into Christianity. What do you mean by that? Well, in other words, they've altered some outward aspects of their life. They go to church, they don't cuss anymore, etc. You know, they kind of fit their life in the outward form of evangelical Christianity, but their inward parts have not been changed. Mm. How often you make this point, Steve, that true Christianity is an issue of the heart of the inner man. Conversion is something that happens in the heart. And, you know, if it only becomes a taking on of an outward lifestyle, then the heart has not been converted. You go on, Steve, and this is really what we're going to spend most of our time on today, talking about certain elements, distinct elements of a true conversion. You list five of them here, conviction of sin and fear of God, spiritual enlightenment, poverty of spirit and repentance, transference of faith and rebirth, and sanctification and fruit. So in the time that we have today, let's just go through these and give our listeners a better idea of these elements. Now, you do make the point that some of these elements may happen all at once. They don't necessarily happen in this order, necessarily, uh, but maybe we can give our listeners an idea of what you mean. For instance, number one, when you talk about conviction of sin and fear of God, what are we really talking about there? One of the great realities of humanity that is expressed over and over again in Scripture is the depravity of mankind. And, you know, that something is terribly wrong, and so something dramatic must happen inside. Well, for a person to realize that something's wrong, they need an agency outside of themselves to bring that reality into their heart. And that is what the Holy Spirit does. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit function is to convict the world concerning sin. And that conviction of sin is what leads the unbeliever to see his need to change. Now, you make note here that seeing our depravity is not enough, but it's actually that conviction that leads to repentance, and you say there is no true conversion without repentance. Yeah, and what we're seeing in the church is a lot of promises. Hey, you know, if you'll join Christianity, you'll get heaven, you'll get blessings, you'll get all this stuff. Just start coming to our church. And very rarely do you hear the kind of preaching that causes unbelievers to see their need to say something is wrong in my life. 
I have sinned against a holy God. I have been in rebellion against his authority, and I am wrong, and I need to change my life. Mm. And therefore, repentance. Sometimes I think many of our listeners may hear the word repentance if they're not familiar with what the Bible really says about it, and you're not talking about, oh, sorry, I messed up. That's not repentance. Well, it's a very weak form of repentance, and I don't believe that kind of repentance brings someone into a saving faith. You go on to talk about spiritual enlightenment. Now, we hear a lot about different kinds of so-called spiritual enlightenment in the world today, but when it comes to Christianity, what form does that take? What does that look like? Well, we've all heard the phrase, you know, that a person has seen the light, and I think a lot of people in the church have experienced spiritual enlightenment. Something has opened up in their mind to make them aware of the spiritual realm. They understand that there is a God. They understand that there are spiritual forces at work. They understand that there is an eternal realm and so on. And that reality dawns upon their mind. That's spiritual enlightenment. But that doesn't equate with conversion. It's only part of the process of conversion. And the problem is a lot of people stop right there. They enter into that awareness of the spiritual realm, and they go no further, and they mistake that as conversion. Mm. You also say that poverty of spirit and repentance are required. Poverty of spirit, probably a term that many listeners will not be familiar with. What are we talking about there? Well, poverty of spirit is when you come to that point where you realize that you need to be saved, kind of what we were talking about a minute ago, but that you realize you cannot do it on your own. You can't make yourself good enough. You can't obey all the rules. You are hopeless, and therefore you need someone who can step in and wash you clean of all the filth of your sins and breathe the life into you that can help you live the Christian faith. You've often talked about conversion as coming to the cross and going through the narrow gate. And in talking about poverty of spirit, I know you've communicated that it means coming to the cross with nothing of your own. I have no good works to bring. Uh, I have no value in my own life to bring. In reality, I'm worth nothing when I come to the cross. And, you know, it reminds me of why the Pharisees had such a hard time coming into Christianity, because they had years of self-effort that they did not want to let go of. And there's so many people that have grown up in church, they've been raised in the church environment, and they don't want to let go of their own goodness. And so they never do go through that narrow gate. They rest their Christianity upon their own works. Mm. I know you've often said, Steve, that the human heart is a consummate liar and flatterer when it comes to seeing what we're really like. Yeah, because let's face it, all the way back to the garden, we do not like acknowledging we're wrong. You know, humans hate to say they're wrong. But see, to go through the narrow gate of repentance, you have to acknowledge that something is terribly wrong in your life. Yeah. You used the story of the prodigal son in showing this, and I thought that was a great example. Talk about that a little bit. Well, it's Jesus' example. It's not mine. You know, he used that story to illustrate what a real conversion looks like. This young man lived for himself, and then he, in the pig pen, 
he came to his senses. And that's a picture of spiritual enlightenment and poverty of spirit. You know, you're coming to the reality that you don't have it and that you need it. But that isn't the conversion yet. Really, the conversion is seen in his two proclamations, I have sinned and I am not worthy. You sense the ownership, the responsibility he's taking for his guilt there, and he's acknowledging that he has been a sinner and that he's not worthy of salvation, and he's throwing himself at the feet of God. You make the point, Steve, that so often what we hear, the message that we hear expressed in the church today, is that even though Scripture tells us to deny ourselves, we're told we're supposed to love ourselves. We are not told what sinners we are and must repent, but we're told how emotionally traumatized in need of inner healing that we are. And, you know, I could wrap all this up. We've become a bunch of victims in the church today. Well, that's certainly a big part of the problem. You know, there's no question about that. It is just another way to avoid taking responsibility for one's own sinful condition. Mm, it sure is. You also mentioned, Steve, the absolute necessity for surrender and submission. Yeah, and again, this comes forth in the story of the prodigal. After he made his two confessions, then he said, make me as one of your hired men. And when he made that statement, what he was saying, in effect, was, I will spend the rest of my life as your servant. I'll spend the rest of my life doing not my will, but your will. That is a sign of a real conversion. So often we see, Steve, here and the men that come for the Live-In program, that the key issue that has to be dealt with right up front is whose will is going to rule in their lives. Yeah, and it takes them usually a few weeks of being in a very spiritual environment and of really seeing the truth of this spiritual reality before they get to the point of being willing to lay down their arms, so to speak, and surrender to God. You know, and really, if you look earlier when we started out, we talked about the depravity of man. At the root, really, of our depravity is our own self-will. That's the bottom line. That is what describes a conversion, is when you go from being in self-will to being controlled by God's will. Steve, lastly, in the list that we presented, you talked about sanctification and fruit in the believer's life. Talk a little bit about that. Anytime a person has truly been born again, sanctification is a process that begins immediately. Now, define sanctification. Some of our listeners may not be familiar with what that means. Well, in a nutshell, it means being made holy. You know, it's a lifelong process that begins with salvation, and from then on, the Holy Spirit begins to work in the person's life, and as the person matures in the faith, they become increasingly more Christ-like. So in a true conversion, that process is going to be evident. Uh, It should be. You know, now some people only go a certain distance in that, and that's why there's different stages of rewards and so on. But yeah, absolutely, there's going to be some sign if there's truly been a salvation. Okay, and as that process of sanctification is going forward then, what do you mean by fruit? Well, I would say that fruit is manifested in two ways. First of all, the person's spiritual life, the way they live their life, and secondly, that that is going to affect the lives of people around them. You know, you could say ministry, but I almost don't even want to use the term ministry, just the way it affects other people. If you go back 150 years ago into the past and examine the way the church did evangelism, you would see something very, very different 
than the way evangelism is done today. In the past, the church really taught the total depravity of man, our inherent sinfulness, and our desperate need for a Savior to save us out of those sins, and the need for repentance from those sins. A seeker would be invited to pray and read Scripture, and they would be prayed for and instructed in the Scripture until something real and meaningful happened inside of them. The seeker would be instructed to just keep at it until the Holy Spirit did a complete work in their lives, leading to a conversion in which they had truly repented of every known sin and everything changed for them. In that case, they had made a complete break from their past and turned to the Lord from deliverance out of their sins. They were truly born again. They could testify that the Holy Spirit changed everything. They had rejected the things of this world, and they began to live a life under the direction of God, and they sought to live a wholly different lifestyle from their past life, a life of consecrated obedience to the Lord. Now, it was expected that this process might take hours or even days The ministers who worked with them would examine them in the attitudes of their heart. They would ask them questions to see what God was doing inside of them. They would be examined to their understanding of Scripture and asked to reflect on passages in the Word and then answer simple questions. And the fascinating thing was, when a person was truly converted, it was very clear The new Christian could give testimony of the moment they came to believe. They knew that they had been visited by God and that he had changed their hearts. The scriptures were now alive to them. Everything was different and they knew it. They had a new love for Christ, a new hatred for sin, and they wanted nothing more than to live for God. This regeneration was a supernatural and a miraculous work of God that changed a soul forever. But near the end of the 1800s, and certainly in the early 1900s, evangelism began to change in America. Prospects were encouraged to make a decision for Christ, and the process of coming to Christ was now sealed with a prayer on the part of the prospect, asking Jesus to come into their hearts. The emphasis changed from coming through repentance into a new life into a decision which they were made to accept by faith. And once they had adopted the faith by making a decision for Christ, they were told that they had been born again based on their decision and on their prayer. Now, Some things began to change for them, but many never truly repented of their sins. There was no real encouragement to come out, separate themselves from the world, and many times there was no emphasis laid on living a life of holiness. If you read any approach to evangelism from, let's say, the 1950s and on to the present, you will quickly see two very real changes. First, the purpose of salvation shifted to one primary thing, escaping hell and going to heaven when you die. Salvation was 
salvation from hell and into heaven, not deliverance out of one's sins. The purpose of salvation became happiness and abundance in this life. They were told, you know God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. So you get happiness now and holiness later in heaven. But this is exactly backwards of what the scripture actually teaches. This is a perversion of the true gospel, the gospel which demands holiness and perseverance through suffering in this life so that someone can experience peace and rest in heaven in the next. Secondly, the process of salvation was very different. Now, one receives the salvation through making a decision and praying the sinner's prayer. I've seen it reduced to the ABCs of salvation. A. Admit that you're a sinner. B. Believe that Jesus died to save you. And C. Confess Jesus as your Savior. And now, pray this prayer and repeat after me. But the result is that you get scores of people who have made an intellectual decision to be saved so that they can miss hell and gain heaven, but they've never repented of their sins. They've never had an experience of transforming regeneration by the Holy Spirit. They're simply told that because they've prayed a prayer, they are born again. Nearly every man who has come into pure life seeking freedom from a long-term habit of sexual sin believes that they have been born again. And when you ask them, how do you know that you're a Christian? They point to a time when they were six or eight or ten years old and they prayed a prayer asking Jesus to come into their hearts. If you ask them, when did you repent from your sins? They have no memory of that happening. Ask them about a radical conversion to Jesus, and they don't have one. They simply prayed a prayer. Most of our men in the residential program have lived their whole lives in the evangelical church, and they have heard almost no teaching on the subject of repentance, and they certainly have never heard the call to a life of holiness before God. What we have in America today is a terrible situation. We have churches that are filled with people who profess Christ, but who have never been saved. They live lives that are essentially no different than their unsaved neighbors, except that they go to church on Sundays. Many of them have learned that they should reject the grosser, big, outward sins, and yet they are not changed deep inside their hearts. They live a life that is largely dedicated to the things of the world, but they expect heaven when they die because they've been told that they have faith. You can even hear some of them say, Christians aren't perfect, we're just forgiven. Well, I know that we're not expected to be perfect, but we are called to be holy. The problem is that many are no different from anyone else. They just ask for forgiveness when they sin. Yes, they ask for forgiveness, but they do not repent of their sins. 
That is, they've never rejected it, never turned from it. They've never sought to rid themselves of their sinful rebellion. They merely confess it and seek to have their guilt assuaged and their record expunged. They don't live a life of consecrated obedience to God, and they do not live under the lordship of Christ, yet they expect to be taken to heaven when they die. A church full of incomplete conversions is the first step to the church addicted. Finally today, we want you to hear the testimony of one of our graduates. When he came to us, he was a seminary student brimming with pride over his knowledge of Scripture, his accomplishments in ministry, but he was stuck in sexual sin and lacking any real faith. Listen to what the Lord accomplished in his life. How does a seminary student like me end up at PLM? After all, I was a good guy, likable, easygoing, a church boy who never did wrong. No drinking, smoking, or cussing. And all those around me spoke nothing but of a fruitful career in ministry. I had just one small sin issue. I occasionally visited pornographic sites and had a past sprinkled with secret and more relationships with women. I came under the delusion that biblical counseling must be the one thing I was missing to solve this issue in my life. I believed I would leave in a Rocky Balboa victory type achievement, arms raised in triumph over my victory. Today I'm leaving, but no arms are raised in triumph. I leave only beginning to understand my total need for Jesus in my life. Moments after arriving at PLM, my suitcase full of pictures and memories of my girlfriend were taken away. My library of Bible books and resources were forced to be left at home, and I found that two of my biggest identities in life were gone, and I felt very much alone. I was forced in a way to seek Jesus, to go to the ridge, and to wake up early before work and seek Him. Slowly God allowed me to peek inside to my inner world. I was overcome with who I am, a liar, a hypocrite, a cheater, ungrateful, angry, critical, selfish, judgmental, self-righteous, a Pharisee, envious, resentful towards others, prideful, need I say any more. No longer could I self-deceive myself in thinking my own righteousness could save me, but I found myself in Psalm 130 crying out from the depths of my sin, pleading for God's mercy. I was brought into a fuller realization of the Mount Everest of sin in my life, and that only in Him was redemption, love, and mercy. He began to painfully take away my idolatries, replacing the face of my Emily with that of the sweet yet broken face of Jesus on the cross. Although I came to PLM as a righteous church boy, I find I am leaving a wretched sinner. I find that worse than the perverse mind is a heart polluted with sin. To love God is not in serving Him or even in praising Him, but true love for God I found is simply found within the intimacy of the heart expression, Come Lord Jesus, come. I now know that I am like that woman who was caught in adultery, drugged to be judged and killed by the world if it were not for God stepping in and having mercy in my life. It is now that I find my inner heart becoming drawn like that of the sinful woman at the feet of Jesus washing his feet with all the tears of who she was, desiring nothing more than, than to be with him. I find that the question is not how did a seminary student end up at PLM, but the real mystery is how did a pervert like me end up within the arms of the great I Am.
I leave knowing the real journey begins tonight as I drive away, but I do leave a child of God, fearful yet determined to fight and overcome the spirit of this world, to be done with sin, to live out the mercy life, to repent when wrong, stay grateful, and to stay strong in his word and prayers. As we close today's program, I'd like to take a few moments for some personal application. Today we talked about incomplete conversions. Pastor Steve gave us a good look at what constitutes a real biblical conversion. And we heard a testimony from a Pure Life grad who came here professing faith in Christ, yet had no control over life-dominating sins. He, like so many others who have come to us, came into salvation when godly sorrow brought about a real repentance. He turned from his sin. He changed his mind about his sin because the Holy Spirit wrought real regeneration in his heart. So if you are stuck in habitual sexual sin, regardless of what you might believe theologically, the Bible says that you cannot stay in your sin and inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom is given to those who obey Christ and who are indwelt and led by the Spirit of God. Salvation is not the result of having prayed a prayer. It is a regenerative work of the inner man by a supernatural work of God, which miraculously changes the heart and makes us new so that we have power to resist temptation and walk free from life-dominating sins. Now, I'm not here to tell you that you aren't saved. That's not my job. It's the job of the Holy Spirit to tell you in your heart whether or not you belong to Christ. But please, allow these questions to examine you. Are you surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus, or are you living for the love of this world? Have you repented of your sins? Does Christ or your sin reign over you? Because salvation is deliverance, and you can be delivered from the sin that you're in. But if you have never turned and have never been delivered from your sins, please consider that maybe you have never truly been born again. But let me also encourage you, the door is wide open to you today, because today is the day of salvation. Jesus does invite all to come to him, to begin asking him for real repentance, for true and saving faith, and he promised that anyone who persists in asking, seeking, and knocking will receive the Holy Spirit and will be born again. I hope that you found this show today to be both enlightening and encouraging. And let me invite you to tune in over the next few episodes as we continue to ask the question, why is the church addicted? That's all for today. Thanks for joining us on Purity for Life. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.